Welcome back to the Africa is a Country podcast. I'm your host, William Shorkey, and you are listening to Africa is a Country's weekly destination for interviews on current affairs topics from an African left perspective. You can find us wherever you listen to your podcasts, Apple, Spotify, Google. And if you so wish, please do leave us a review, give us some feedback, tell us what you'd like to change, tell us what you'd like to stay the same. So if you missed our last episode, it was a great interview with Temi Tope Fagunwa as well as Saeed Husseini on the academic strikes in Nigeria. The questions we probed there is whether or not the strike could become something bigger than addressing the grievances of academics. Could it include students? Could it include, include other sections of Nigeria's working class? Could it be a fees must fall moment in Nigeria? So check out that episode wherever you listen to your podcasts. And today's program is a great one. It's an interview I recorded with Professor Vivek Chiba. Vivek Chiba, who is a professor of sociology at New York University and the author of Postcolonial Theory and the Spectre of Capital, as well as Locked in Place, State Building and Late Industrialization in India. He is a contributor to the Socialist Register, American Journal of Sociology, the Boston Review, Jacobin, as well as the New Left Review. And he's the editor of Catalyst, a journal of theory and strategy. And I sat down with Professor Chiba to talk about his latest book, The Class Matrix, Social Theory After the Cultural Turn. So if you want to know what that book is about exactly, stay tuned, have a listen and enjoy. Professor Chiba, thank you so much for, for coming onto the program to discuss your latest book. And if we could begin by perhaps unpacking the central arguments that it makes the way I understand it is that there's a standard Marxist assumption that capitalism generates a powerful antagonism between capital and labor. Workers have no choice but to rise up against their oppressors and in so doing make a smooth transition from being a class in itself to a class for itself. And in rising up, they dig the graves of capitalism. Now, of course, in most of the world, there was a period where it seemed like this might be an imminent reality, but that didn't happen, especially in the post-war era in, in the West. And what workers instead did was capitulate and became integrated into capitalism. And having borne witness to that, what the left did was wonder about how traditional theories of class cannot explain why workers didn't revolt, but in, instead resigned themselves to the status quo and thought, well, the left then thought that rather than looking at traditional theories of class, one has to look outside of it to explain why this capitulation happened. And this is what births the cultural turn. So could you speak a little bit about what exactly is the cultural turn and what critique you try to make in the book against this this response from the left yeah thank you that's actually an excellent summary uh william the you laid the backdrop to the cultural turnout very well so let me take the story from there the, the post-war marxists did confront what they saw as a theoretical conundrum which was as you said if capitalism is exploitative and workers do have what appears to be an interest in, at the very least, organizing to defend themselves and perhaps even organizing to change the system, 
then why did that process, which seemed to be underway in the first part of the 20th century, come to a halt by the 1950s? That was the question. Mm. And the answer that many of them gave, which rapidly became widely accepted within the new left, was that workers failed to rise up or failed even to organize because of the power and the force of culture and cultural influences on them through the media, through the family, through the church, any one of myriad institutions. And in so far as culture had this tremendous effect, it of course raised a political problem, which is how does the left overcome the cultural influence of the dominant classes? But it also revealed a theoretical problem within Marxism, which is that it seemed to shove culture aside in its understanding of capitalism and thereby missed an enormously important mechanism in the reproduction and the stabilization of the system. Mm -hmm. And so the whole theory then had to be rethought. That was the idea. The idea was the theory now has to be reformulated. And by the theory, I mean the theory of class, which is the bedrock for the theory of capitalism for Marxists. So the whole theory of class and therefore also the theory of capitalism had to be reformulated to take on board a central place for culture, which it had not hitherto done. That was the origin of the cultural turn. Mm. Now this goes in two phases. The earlier phase was the less ambitious one. And it simply said, culture is an important intervening factor between the, the world out there and the working class's understanding of its place in that world. Culture helps shape that and it transmits the signals from the world into the consciousness of the working class. So it's like a black box. It's a transmission channel, mm. which has to be more fully fleshed out and theorized in order to complete our understanding of the causal chain, which extends from the class structure to the action of the working class. Mm. Later, this became a much more ambitious enterprise, which said culture not only helps translate the world into the consciousness of the working class, it actually shapes the world itself because it's shaping the actions of the working class and those actions shape the world. So going, it, the cultural turn went from culture being something that helps us understand the world to being something that helps create the world. Mm. And at that moment, the very idea of an objective class structure, an objective world, objective interests with the working class now starts evaporating. And the very idea of class being an obdurate reality, a structural reality, starts to evaporate. By the late 20th century, now the cultural turn is in a world where everything is the creation of ideology and culture, rather than culture and ideology being a consequence of the class structure. Mm. That's where we were at the early 2000s. And that, in the old Marxist language, what you now have is a straightforward idealism. You have mm. a cultural constructionism. And um, that was the challenge that my book take up, took up to confront both the weak and the strong version of the cultural term. Mm. Before we before we get into the argument itself, uh, a question I'd wondered, and it's also a bit of a self-reflective question because you know in my in my own writing, I think of myself as intervening in the public debate in South Africa in service of rescuing class from the cultural tone, which is the title of, of one of your catalyst essays from which a lot of the book's arguments are drawn. And the question I, I had in mind 
throughout reading it is to whom is the book addressed? So when we think about the places where this culturalist zeitgeist predominates, it's largely in the academy and throughout the left intelligentsia. And often these are the people I'm also in dialogue with, but sometimes I often wonder to myself, uh, do they really matter in the sense that the the constituency that matters for the kind of politics uh, that the left and particularly the Marxist left wants to build is the working class. And the working class doesn't need convincing about the primacy of, of class position in constraining one's interests and agency since they're sufficiently persuaded by the dull economic, the dull compulsion of economic relations, which is the, the quote from Marx that you, you peppered the book with. So I guess, yeah, the question I had in mind in, in thinking about uh, to whom this book is addressed is, is in a way, does the sort of persistence of these debates um, and the very kind of the cultural tone itself, is, is that something that is responsible for the growing chasm between the, the left in, in scare quotes and the working class? Or, or is it a symptom um, and an expression of, of the, the disconnection from, uh, of the left and, and the working class? That's a great question. My belief is that it's a symptom of the chasm and not a cause of the mm. chasm. Um, and if, so let me explain what, what I mean by that. It's a symptom of the chasm because if the left there's a reason why the cultural turn really takes hold in the era of the left's defeat mm. and in the era of the retreat of the labor movement and the socialist parties and the communist parties. The reason is the reason that connection is there is that as long as the left was a part of the working class movement, and as long as left intellectuals were either directly involved in organizing or disciplined by a culture of working class organizing, then the daily grind and reality of the dull compulsion of economic relations was something that intellectuals also encountered, if not directly, then indirectly through the organizations of which they were a part. Therefore, the idea that class is a cultural construct, that the world is a cultural construction, was just inconceivable in that left culture. And but maybe later we'll come to this. The notion that Gramsci, for example, was a cultural theorist of this sort is, I think, <laughs> really dubious because there he is after having organized the workers councils and the trade unions in Italy and rotting away in a fascist prison being at the receiving end of a class defeat he's not going to wonder if class is real or not mm. none of that generation believed in this the reason that it happens later is that as the the organic connection between intellectuals left intellectuals and the working class is severed intellectuals become housed in universities and professional settings, which does two things. It, first of all, it removes them from the daily grind of class struggle and that affects their consciousness and their understanding of the world. Secondly, it puts them in an incentive structure where let's face it, nobody who's making six figure salaries in an American university wants to hear about the brute realities of class struggle mm. and then reward you for it. It's not the world that they inhabit. There's a very strong incentive structure, in, a, in the academy to a not be a radical at all and if you're going to be a radical to refashion it so that the old challenges to the system like marxism seem mm, simple-minded misconceived dull-headed and 
you move towards a conception of the system which is consistent with the class position and the class experiences of intellectuals. Mm. So once Marxism or class theory becomes taken over by this stratum of the middle class, which is severed from working class struggles, of course now its consciousness and its theorizing starts to change. That mm. being the case, the cultural turn is a symptom and not a cause of this separation between workers and the intelligentsia. Now that brings up your, the second part of your question. Why worry about it then? Well, the reason you worry about it is that twofold. One is in the world that we inhabit today, among your generation, even amongst mine, there has been a catastrophic collapse of confidence among Marxists. Because they haven't won anything in 50 years, mm. they really don't see their theory helping to change the world. Mm. And because they have not had the training of the, the, the transmission of the history of socialist struggles that had been passed on from generation to generation from, say, the 1870s to the 1940s. There's a missing generation of Marxists now. They don't know the history of their own movement. They get it from their professors who are quite hostile to that movement. So they believe things like Marxists never took race seriously. Marxists never took culture seriously. Marxists never took identity and oppression seriously. They've been these dim-witted, dull-headed, one-issue, economistic, you know, uh, uh, troglodytes. So when you see a Marxist today, chances are they'll be in the academy because outside the academy, the movement's been destroyed. Mm -hmm. And within the academy, they believe a lot of this crap that their professors have told them. And so the, what a book like this is intended to do is to, at the very least, set the record straight on two things. What is the history of the Marxist movement? And secondly, this is the funny part, it's telling Marxists, here's what your theory actually implies. Mm. You haven't thought hard enough about your theory. And that's not just for my generation and yours. It was true of Stuart Hall. It was true of E.P. Thompson. They did not fully comprehend the implications of their own theory. The implications of their own theory were that the stability of capitalism doesn't come from culture. It comes from the properties of the class structure itself. In fact, we'll come to this later, they reversed the causal connection. They were right in that culture does mediate class formation, mm. but they thought culture inhibits it. Actually, as I argue in the book, culture is one of the things that helps cement class formation. Mm. What inhibits class formation is the properties of the class structure itself, the material properties. What the book is trying to do, therefore, is to press socialists and Marxists to do two things. First, understand their theory isn't the dim-witted, dull-headed, economistic, reductive theory that their critics make it out to be. So have some confidence in your theory. Is a reason it worked for 100 years. And secondly, to try to then also show that the, the line of argument extending from the 50s into the 80s, which pushed materialism aside, is profoundly flawed and try to give reasons as to why it's flawed so that whatever confidence we have as socialists doesn't come from cheerleading or indoctrination, but from a cool, calm confident confidence in the properties of the theory itself. That is going to be confined to the academy, as you said. Mm. But sadly, this is where socialists are right now. It's in the mm. professional class. And right now in that class, there is some initial process of clarification and education that needs to happen for the left to, be, uh, to gain strength. Mm. So, so in clarifying the implications of traditional 
materialist class theory. Could you talk a little bit about how the the, the properties that inhere in capitalism are the ones that tend to its stabilization? So why is it that capitalism by its very nature is something that rather than as anticipated by the Marxists of yore would it lead to its demise, but is instead something that creates its resilience and persistence through time? The Marxists of the earlier generations, uh, that's Marx and Engels, Kautsky, and then Lenin, Luxembourg, Gramsci, they were not wrong in thinking that the fundamental property of the class structure is to generate an antagonism between mm. labor and capital. They were right about that. That image of the class structure was also taken on board by the new left for after the 50s and 60s. The problem was in their theory, they only saw the class structure as being the, the elements that propel these classes into an antagonism. Mm. And if the antagonism was being blunted or muted, they became convinced that the muting of that antagonism must come from outside the class structure because the structure is responsible for generating the antagonism. Insofar as the antagonism doesn't result in actual class conflict, that's because something is getting in the way of the class structures, properties, and the workers' consciousness mm -hmm. acting on their interests. Now, that extra thing, that outside thing, of course, was culture. And in the language of Marxism, as Stuart Hall said, Marxists give too much attention to the base. They, they need to understand that the superstructure also has its own salience, its independence, as evidenced in the role of culture, uh, subordinating and cementing the working class into the system. All right, so my argument is they are right in their surmise that the class structure generates an antagonism. What they failed to fully theorize, however, I, I, I don't want to say they didn't comprehend it because mm -hmm. they had to comprehend it to do their work, to do the organizing. But they, they did not raise what was implicit in their practice to the level of theory. So what is this that they left incomplete? It was that the same class structure that generates an antagonism also manages to make that antagonism uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Uh, uh, I'm going to use the same word twice. It also makes, it also turns this antagonism into something manageable yeah. by the ruling class. The error, in my view, of that early theory was that it wrongly assumed that antagonism would eventuate in collective resistance and collective action. Whereas what the structure actually does is to channel the antagonism into an individualistic course of resistance and action. How does it do this? Well, simply by raising the costs and imposing great risks on workers if and when they organize. So that organizing becomes a highly contingent affair, an affair dependent on workers overcoming a host of obstacles that the structure itself imposes on them. What are these obstacles? Well, the fundamental one is that when they start to organize, they're already in a relation of subordination and vulnerability to their boss. And the bosses, whatever else they may do, they always and everywhere try to derail organizing drives. And the best way they do that is to sack and fire the few workers who are taking up the burden of organizing. So your job is on the line. The problem of bringing workers together into a common program 
Mm. How do you balance the different desires and different needs that they have? They're all important. The problem of workers, what we call in social science is free riding. Mm. Because of the difficulties of organizing, trying to get somebody, somebody else to take up the burdens and the cost of the organizing drive. And you kind of hoping that you benefit from it without having to take all the risks. All of these obstacles come about because of how the workers are located in the class structure, because of their lack of resources, because of their vulnerability, things like that. Mm. Now, that being the case, workers find it prudent to resist without taking on all the burdens and the risks. And that means they resist individually through individual acts of whatever kind. But here's the consequence. The moment a worker abjures collective action in favor of individualistic action and individual standoffs against his employer, he accepts his place in the system. Because in that bargaining situation, employers are at a massive advantage over the worker. So the worker, it, because his location in the class structure inclines him towards individualistic resistance, also ends up cementing his place in the class structure. Mm -hmm. This is not because he fails to understand the system. It's not because of some kind of socialization which gets in the way of his concrete apprehension. It is from a correct understanding of his place in the system and mm -hmm. of the cost associated with class struggle. Mm. Now, all of this is true. It means that the class structure has two properties, one which the early Marxists correctly theorized, the second which they left untheorized. The first property is that it generates antagonism. The second property is that it channels the antagonism into manageable forms of resistance for the ruling class without any intervention of culture and ideology as a blunting force. Mm. Mm. If that's true, then it means that materialism is in fact vindicated. That in order to understand both the, the conflicts that capitalism generates and why those conflicts tend to be system sustaining and not system- uh, uh, Destabilizing. System yeah, system threatening or destabilizing, you only have to look at the structure itself. Mm. You don't have to bring up class. Where, sorry, culture. Where culture does matter, is in helping workers overcome that hesitation to collectively organize. It's part of creating, and we can talk about that more, I don't want to go on too long, it's part of creating the identity, the class consciousness and the class identity, which helps them take on all of these risks and see other workers as comrades, not as potential competitors and enemies. Mm. Now, so ironically, the new left was right, culture is very important. But culture, its importance resides in helping the class formation become a complete phenomenon rather than inhibiting class formation. Before we talk about how culture helps generate class formation, I want to unpack what you'd said earlier about how when a worker decides to undertake individual strategies of resistance that arises from a correct estimation on their part about the risks of collective struggle um, and the limited reward of that collective struggle, um, unless, for example, uh, you're in a moment of uh, high politicization or, or organizing, um, it would be rational for a worker to sort of to opt out of that. Uh, could you could you talk a little bit more about that? Because I think there's 
I think a, a lot of people would hear that and they'd be surprised to hear that if if a worker uh, acts so everyone thinks against their interests, uh, that would be rational, that undertaking individual resistance and maybe prioritizing your own upward mobility as a worker or prioritizing the security of your job, that would be the most rational route uh, against taking up arms and, and, and um, you know, confronting your boss. Um, why do you, why is that, uh, why is that rational in your, in your argument? Because uh, I think a lot of people would be like, oh, but it's, it's against their interests. Yeah, the first thing to understand is it's not against their interests. Mm. It is it is very much at their interest, and that's why they do it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> the left has come to a point where it, it, it is quite satisfied and unmoved in characterizing hundreds and hundreds of millions of working people as irrational and dupes. How did it come to this? You can, of course, there are times when people can be irrational. And there are some individuals who are systematically irrational. But can you honestly think that the hundreds of millions of proletarians out there in the world who do not organize themselves into unions, who might even be hesitant to do so when given the chance, mm-hmm. that they do not understand their interests? That's an amazing conception of human agency. And it's a quite an amazing conception of the very constituency that you seek to organize into a fighting force. I can tell you this, there was never a time in the history of Marxism when socialists and trade unions came to labor with this sort of perspective until recently. So let's go back to the beginning. Why do they choose to struggle individually rather than collectively? It's very simple. Your job is on the line. And for most, the overwhelming majority of workers, it's better to have a shitty job than to have no job. Now, if it is the case, that they're vulnerable to their employer, if it is the case that undertaking an organizing drive takes enormous resources in terms not just of money, but of time, of energy, of skill, space, finding places where you can go and hold meetings and things like that. If that statement is true, then how could it not be that most workers would be hesitant? If it takes resources and it, 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 it is a risky venture, what is your conception of human consciousness and motivation that you think hundreds of millions of people who lack those resources and who try or desperately hanging on to a job what is your conception of agency where you think they will throw themselves into this struggle without any regard for their well-being and the implications for them it's it's insane Mm. the only time socialists have been successful in organizing them is in taking these worries seriously Mm. And then helping them overcome those worries, not through simple exhortation, not through shaming them, not through wagging a finger at them, but by trying to reduce the risks and generating, organizing strategies and goals that are actually realistic and achievable so that they see that they're not being asked to throw themselves off a cliff, but to undertake a contract struggle or a movement which they could actually win. Mm. Mm. Any organizer worth his salt understands this in a practical sense. The problem is they don't have the vocabulary and the theoretical training to be able to articulate it properly. And so while they're in their practice, they might be treating workers as rational, thinking, reasonable people. In their meetings and in their theory sessions, they will 
accept this ridiculous notion that workers spontaneously are revolutionary and it, the job of the organizer is simply to help stoke that revolutionary consciousness. It's mm. never happened. Mm. Revolutionary consciousness is a consequence of organizing. It is not something antecedent to organizing. If it were, you really wouldn't need organizers. <laughs> they would just they would organize themselves and they just do it, right? Yeah. So, the, so that's why I my view is that the it is not only rational for them to undertake individualist strategies or socialists have always understood this. Mm. And they've understood it because if you look at all the pamphlets and all the debates around labor and organizing in the 1920s and 1930s, except for the exhortation that comes out like Rosa Luxemburg's general strike or something like that. If you look at the actual quotidian daily pamphlet, it's all about overcoming the hesitation that workers have. And that hesitation is seen as being legitimate, understandable. Mm. Mm. All I'm doing in the book is trying to theorize that uh, and bring it to the same level of abstraction as the part of the theory that says there is an antagonism between the workers, mm. uh, between work capitalists. And part of overcoming that hesitation, as we've started alluding to, involves culture and trying to, to build organizations that are underpinned by a solidaristic culture, encouraging members to feel a sense of mutual obligation and responsibility for each other, generating this culture in a way that's sensitive to the particular circumstances in which that class organization is built. Could you talk about how culture plays a role in in organizing um but how come that's that's it plays that role but it doesn't play a role in the opposite direction of influencing someone's class interests or shaping um someone's conception of of their class interests but it can shape those, the class consciousness yeah for those listeners or viewers who've done labor organizing just reflect a minute on your own practice unless you've been exceptionally lucky and stumbled into spontaneously class conscious group of workers what you typically find is when they are told about what a union or a political left organization will do for them they're quite open to it they like the idea but when they're invited to do the work of actually building one they tend to hesitate for a couple of reasons Many of them say this is pie in the sky. It's never going to happen. It can't mm -hmm. work because we've seen it fail too many times. The second thing is they say, I'd love to do it, but I can't lose my job. I'd love to do it, but I already work 12 hours a day, 14 hours a day. Now you want me to come to a meeting. I'd yeah. love to do it, but th the rest of these people in my workplace, half of them snitch on me all the time. The other half want things that I can't agree with. These are all things that you come across. And as an organizer, the, now you have, a, you have a choice. You can either do what the global left today does, which is you can try to shame them, embarrass them, humiliate them, and tell them they're not up to snuff, which is great for you and your friends, but it immediately means you've given up any chance to actually organize anyone. Because you can't organize people who you're treating as fools and calling them fools to their face. The other option is you listen to them and you take these worries seriously and then you try to make it less daunting, mm. make it less risky for them, and hence more inviting. Now, that is the material basis for organizing. And every single organizing drive has to take this approach if it's going to be uh, successful. Mm. But 
it is a, a fact because of the the vulnerability and the lack of resources and the the irreducible level of risk that workers have to undertake and take on if they're going to organize whatever you're doing to reduce their their vulnerability and their their costs is never going to erase those dilemmas because they're built into the structure so yeah. even if you have strike fund which makes it less risky to go on strike even if you have in your through some way uh, a short working day so that they can have more time to go to meetings even if you have a union hall where they can bring where they can assemble and have discussions at the end of the day they're still going to be vulnerable to the sack and at the end of the day they still are poor so some level of sacrifice is built into every organizing drive even if you mitigate the risks and you reduce the costs why then will they undertake that level of sacrifice rationally well they won't part of it has to come from changing their normative orientation their motivation from simply being defense of the self and defense of them their families to an outward orientation where they feel a sense that if others are undertaking risks others are doing the hard work i owe it to them to participate and to share some of it because i'm going to be one of the beneficiaries if we win that's a moral commitment and that's what we call solidarity solidarity now this is the important point solidarity is based on a commonality of material interests. And a, it's based on a sober reflection of what your odds are of winning or losing in any given strike. Mm. But it cannot simply be reduced to that rational calculation. It has to have an element of other orientedness, which comes through not a rational calculus, but from moral, cultural, ideological work, which builds a sense of community, builds a sense of mutuality between workers. And that's where culture becomes important. Culture becomes important in helping workers generate the identity and a sense of collective responsibility that is essential for class formation. If that's the case, look what we have. We have a theory now that explains the re reluctance to organize as a consequence of the material reality of the class structure. Mm. and an inclination to organize as partly driven by the work of culture and ideology. This mm. reverses the understanding of the new left, for whom the antagonism and the urge to struggle is driven by the structure, but the disinclination comes from ideological socialization. Mm. In my view, disinclination comes from the structure, and the transition to a more political consciousness comes from the combination of material work and ideological work. Mm. So can culture and ideology explain any of the disinclination at all? So what, what place do, for example, theories of hegemony have in understanding the stability of capitalism? This, this would be the part to talk about, about Gramsci and, and, your, and your argument that we've all horribly misinterpreted uh, the poor man. Well, I, we should start by acknowledging that we haven't all hardly misunderstood <laughs> him. There has been a strain of materialist Gramsci work that's been steady from the 70s onward, but it's been a minority strain. Mm. The majoritarian tendency is to see him as a cultural 
theorist, as a cultural constructionist even. Um, and my argument is simply building on a, you know, on, on a quite long tradition of materialist interpretations of Gramsci. It's by no means the first one. Um, so the question that you had was, what is the role of culture and ideology? Now, at the, the risk of repetition, it is clearly not the mechanism that solidifies and stabilizes the system, as I've said. What solidifies and stabilizes it is the imbalance in the capacities of the two classes to act in their interests, right? It's the all the obstacles in front of workers. Mm -hmm. So what does culture then do? I said, well, it does two things. One is it actually is important in help generating a class consciousness and class solidarity. Yeah. Okay, but does it play any role in stabilizing the system at all? Yes. In my view, what you should see ideology doing is not in generating the motivational structure of workers. The, mot the workers' motivation to resist in the way that they resist or to not resist at all comes from the material costs that they face in everyday political work. Yeah. Ideology does is it helps them live with their decisions. Mm. Ideology should be seen as something that rationalizes your choices and not something that motivates your choices. So I make a distinction between motivational mechanisms and rationalizing mechanisms. What motivates mm. workers to do what they do is by and large they, their pursuit of their material interests, which they understand fairly well. But look what they're saying, look what we're attributing to them. We are saying workers rationally choose the less risky option, an option which cements their place in the system. Now, that's not an easy choice to live with. It means every day you go to work and you submit to the authority, the illegitimate authority of an, a power that uses its authority over you in an arbitrary way towards its own ends, not in your ends. Mm. Every day you have to go back to that and return to that subordination. Well, one of the things that helps you live with that is generating a worldview which tells you that what you're doing may not be the best of all possible worlds, but it's the only possible world. Mm. So ideology is a rationalizing mechanism. For working class people, it takes the form of cynicism, Marx had this term reification. It reifies social relations. And interestingly, even here, it's not a false consciousness. When at the, uh, the worker looks at his situation and he says, there's nothing I can do about this. Well, as long as he's struggling individually, that's true. As long as he is not in a political organization, it's true that there's not much, almost nothing that he can do about it. The cynicism, you can't change the system. It's, a, it's true. But what it's doing is taking a sliver of reality and blowing it up into a worldview. That's what a rationalization mm. is. Mm. Ruling class, capitalists rationalize. One of the arguments I make in the book is capitalists are also constrained by the structure that's the same as workers are. Workers have to show up for work every day, submit to capitalist authority. Capitalists have to submit to the profit motive, to maximizing profits at the, uh, above all else. Now, they also then have to live with these choices. How do they do it? They also feel that what drives the system cannot be changed. So when I fire my workers, when I deny them their benefits, when I deny them housing, when I terrorize them on the shop floor, 
what's the saying? It's not personal. It's just business. What, mm -hmm. what does that mean, that, that saying? It's saying that the economy is a morality-free zone. Morals don't apply here. Why would they say that? They say it because it helps them live with what they're doing every day. The same way that workers' cynicism helps them live with what they're experiencing every day. Capitalists also are the, ironically, the new left thought that the workers consent to the system. They give it their active consent by ideology. What I've said is that they actually give a very grudging consent mm. because they see no other choice. Well, there is a class that gives the system its active consent. That's capital. Yeah. If you want to look for consent, Gramscian consent, look to capitalists. Now, why do they consent in this way? Because they are the winners. And an ideology that legitimizes the system helps them live with the system. So they will say, look, people are selfish. There's nothing you can do. It's a Darwinian world. It's dog eat dog. It's all against all. That reflects their place in the system. But then they'll also say, and look how great it turned out for everyone. Mm. It's a meritocracy. Those people at the top, they're the ones who work hardest. They're the ones who have the most talent, et cetera, et cetera. Why do they believe that? They believe it because in their view, that justifies they're taking all the rewards. They're taking all the money and all the wealth. So what ideology is doing for both classes is that it helps them rationalize their place in the system. And in so doing, it reduces the friction. And in so doing, it does help stabilize the system. The point is, it's stabilizing the system, not as the fundamental mechanism, but as a mechanism that papers over the cracks once the essential decisions have already been made by people's pursuit of their material interests. Mm. Is this, is this a, what would you say to someone who would say this is just another base superstructure argument? <laughs> well, look, the base, base superstructure is a very misleading, I think, uh, metaphor. Mm. But like all metaphors, it's intended to convey the flavor of a causal connection and not the details of what that causal connection are. Yeah. Flavor of the causal connection is simply this, what Marx said in the German ideology, which is it's people's social being that determines their consciousness, not their consciousness. That's all I'm saying here. I'm saying that their social being is the pursuit of their material interests. Mm. Now they generate a consciousness that helps them live with the pursuit of their material interests. Mm. Okay. Mm. okay, is that base superstructure? Well, if that's what you want to call it, fine. But you can't dismiss a th theory because it's got the wrong label. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> virtue of it is whether it's right or wrong. Yeah, good words. And yeah, I mean, what, what are the strategic implications of, of all of this? Because I think you... Your book is is a great corrective to uh, classical Marxist determinism that thinks in virtue of workers occupying a certain class location, that's going to automatically lead to their class formation. But I think you you very powerfully describe the tremendous barriers to class formation and capture it as a very highly contingent process that in the in the end of it all it feels like there's very little factors that we can control in organizing and predicting the success of organizing 
is so difficult and the probabilities of success are so slim and they depend on the right historical circumstances. In many ways, we've passed into a historical moment where those conditions seem completely elusive that, not that this is what you're doing, but it, it almost feels like things are so stacked against the working class that uh, rather than the working class being predestined to, to rising up against, against capitalists and overthrowing them, it feels like the working class is predestined to, to resignation and, and having to sort of uh, align with the system, be integrated to it, uh, find solace in ideologies, as you say, that help them live with their circumstances. So if, if the tendency in capitalism moves so profoundly towards its stabilization, what space can we carve out for effective political agency that can actually make uh, a dent on things and, and shift our fortunes? I don't see it as a pessimistic, two things. First, I don't see it as a pessimistic argument. Mm. Secondly, I don't think socialists should be in the business of seeing things as being pessimistic or optimistic. We should simply see whether it's true or false. Mm. If it's true and daunting, then roll up your sleeves and get to work. If, uh, if it's unduly pessimistic, then it's just wrong. And you should come up with a better theory. But, you know, theories aren't uh, therapy sessions. They're not meant to make you feel good about the world. <laughs> they're, they're meant to reveal the structure of the world. And it's your job then to do what it takes to change it. And um, I, that's why it's, Marxists have always been sober, realistic, and in a dogged pursuit of truth, not in a dogged pursuit of feeling good. That's something that happened when the professional class took over it and it became a gen, general part of their portfolio of therapy sessions and therapizing everything, <laughs> judging the world by what, how it makes them feel rather than their place in the world. So that said, the reason I don't think it's pessimistic or, uh, is that the world today is so much better than it was 100 years ago. Mm. And that was a capitalism that was quite brutal 100 years ago. And the world became better by virtue of workers overcoming all those obstacles that I've laid out in the book, successfully overcoming them. Now, we have a history of success. We have a history of tremendous victories, not just the revolutions in Russia, China, Vietnam, etc., but social democracy, the welfare state, even an anemic, pathetic welfare state like the American one, it came out of working class struggle. Mm. So there's 100 years of lessons out there for us if we choose to learn from them. The reason I believe it's important to be sober is this. If you create a fantasy world in which workers spontaneously rise up because they are imbued with the revolutionary consciousness that is implanted in their head by the antagonisms of the class structure, then all you need to do is light a cigarette, sit back, put on a movie, and wait for them to do the work. That means you willingly give up learning any of the lessons that the last hundred years have to teach you. But if you recognize that it took overcoming certain obstacles. If you recognize that if workers aren't spontaneously rising up, it's not because they fail to fill out the correct forms of revolutionary consciousness mm. and show up your doorstep ready-made, but because the world is daunting for them, then your reaction will be to say, let's figure out how it happened in the past. 
what tactical orientations worked, what strategic perspectives were more effective than others. And in the world today, as the cap in the capitalism that we confront today, let's see if we can uh, implant a strategy and generate some effective instruments that will help us do it again. If you do not, in a sober and clear-headed fashion, confront the obstacles as they are, you're giving up. And look, I'll be honest with you, one big reason why the current left, as it were, is unhappy about pessimistic theories, theories like mine, is that the, it has the option not to struggle. It has the option mm. not to change the world because it's quite comfortable in its own surroundings. Mm. So, of course, you look for theories for their therapizing effect rather than their illumination. Mm. If, if we continue to now generate another left, as I hope we're doing now, we will have to come back to the very sort of uh, clear-headed realism that Marxists a hundred years had, in which there was no room for fantasy building and there was no room for self-deception. You had to have a serious orientation. So just to conclude, A, Marxists shouldn't worry about theories being pessimistic or optimistic. They should worry about right, correct or incorrect. And secondly, insofar as you wish to be optimistic, there's plenty of reasons to be optimistic because the world that we inhabit today was tr fundamentally transformed by the working class. And mm. we can hope for it again. Mm. And, and in hoping for that again and in trying to build that again, how do we generate this new left? We began by acknowledging that unfortunately, and as a result of the historical defeat of the working class and the decimation of working class organizations in large parts of the world today, even in the global South, must say um, a lot of socialists, progressive, the left, uh, whatever you want to call them, uh, reside in, in universities, in all of these kind of elite spaces. Uh, and, you know, this is where there are. And one thing that is, you know, interesting thinking about the role of uh, the middle class, uh, the political role of the middle class, and especially its role in in rebuilding uh, class politics, um, is you know everyone knows this argument. It's very familiar. You know the PMC or whatever is downwardly mobile. Uh, they're being squeezed by capitalism, and supposedly this provides fertile ground for building uh, cross class coalitions between uh, the middle classes, the downwardly mobile sections at least, and the working class. And, and often these coalitions are very hard to build. Uh, they break down very quickly. Uh, there's often a reluctance on the part of the middle class elements to sort of subordinate themselves to the leadership of the working class in whatever coalition they're trying to build. Um, there's problems to do with uh, the attitude expressed by one side to the other that tends to be condescending and and so on and so forth. And typically, when trying to understand the inability to build that political solidarity, the kind of um, recalcitrance of of the professional classes is is explained away as being a matter of sort of cultural proclivities and they're just socialized to to have that kind of uh, patronizing and 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 condescending attitude. But what I thought interesting about reading your book is that in many ways, it can kind of 
explain why you know the the middle class and the PMC is is kind of uh, is predisposed away from forging political solidarity with the working class because um, it's often not in their material interest to do so. And the kind of ideologies that sort of sustain that that attitude of of skepticism and reluctance and so on and so forth is what can allow sort of um, the PMC to to live with its 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 hostility towards towards broader working class forces. Um, and like in this again, how do we, you know, thinking about building that 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 new 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 left um, that doesn't exhibit that attitude that kind of overcomes its the predispositions of its of its generated by the class structure and its location in the class structure. Yeah, what's what's the way out? My feeling is I shouldn't call it a feeling. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. We're supposed to do away with feelings, Professor Trevor. You're uh myself now. <laughs> William is that we are on, on the one hand, it's a very energizing and optimistic time right now because mm. for the first time in most of my lifetime, certainly in yours, politics is coming back into the public sphere and into public discourse. South Africa is a bit unusual in that uh, even up to the mid nineties, you know, it, it was not only a very political culture, but the most advanced political culture in the global South, certainly, yeah. and in much of the world as well. But it, that the, the implosion of South African politics was also the most rapid that we've ever seen. Yeah. So certainly the last say 18, 20 years, there's been a rapid degeneration of South African political culture so that it's starting to catch up with the degenerate, the de degeneracy that we see in the West. Yeah. But even in your lifetime, it's been a pretty bad uh, phase for the left. So the optimism on the one hand, the good news is that in places like the United States and in Western Europe, for the first time, we're seeing the reemergence of real political debate and the left, a left that is once again, orienting towards at least rhetorically orienting towards labor. And that's, that's something right there. Mm. What's the, the, the flip side of that though, is that it has all the, the very fact of this, these debates emerging has also revealed just how far we have fallen not just in bourgeois culture, but in the left as well. You know, I never expected to be writing two books on post-colonial theory and on mm -hmm. culture and all that, because these are such blindingly simple issues. It is, I'm literally, I feel like I'm trying to explain to Marxists that the earth is not flat. <laughs> That in fact, human beings are reasonable thinking people, that black people also have a keen sense of their interests, that Indians don't just get up in the morning and pray to 40 gods every day. <laughs> yeah, you're having to explain this to the left, the left I'm having to explain it. Yeah. Well, that shows that the rot is so, so deep, w much deeper than I had anticipated, even when I wrote the post-colonial theory book, okay? Mm. And I... That the reason I bring that up is I think organizationally, politically, and also intellectually, we are starting again from scratch. Yeah. We are right now where the European left was probably in the 1880s, the 1890s, when it, 
you know, 30 years after the Chartist movement, after the revolutions of 1848, this is where they were. A feeling of abject defeat, of helplessness, tremendous confusion about where to go, what to do. Um, so to my mind, the first thing to realize is that we're starting from scratch again. But when we have to argue on the left for the salience of class, for the salience of labor and labor organizations, for the importance of material interests, when we have to make an argument for that, it means we, we're, we're decimated. Okay. Now, that said, the fact that the left today is orienting to labor, whereas it wasn't 10 years ago, is a big step forward and it's something to work with. Mm. The question that you brought up is, well, what is labor? Does labor also include the PMC? And if it does, then how do we bridge the gap between them and what we would call the blue collar working class or something? Mm. And my view is that this thing called the PMC is, this is not really a scientific term, it's a catch-all. It includes many layers within the middle classes. So look at the term, professional managerial class. Well, how do you plan to bring managers into the socialist movement? <laughs> what does that even mean? So insofar as we're talking about the PMC, we're really talking about the P, not the M. Yeah. The M, yeah. the very lowest rungs of the M might be amenable to a working class or socialist movement, but most of them won't be. That's just out of the question. What about the professionals? Well, professionals are also, there are many strata of the professionals. There is a, a section of it, I feel, that is open to a some sort of social democratic agenda at the very least, especially demographically, the younger elements of the professional classes uh, who face much more precarious jobs, more, more uncertain futures, who don't have the benefits in their jobs that the older ones do. Those will be open to it. But going back to Gramsci or even Lenin, don't rely on them to start things. Mm. So students, graduate students, professors, that, that's where a lot of the left is, nonprofits, NGOs. They, the most you can expect of them is to be amenable and willing to ride along. But as an actual political force, look, there's been, there's 30 years of graduate student organizing now, grad student unions. Honestly, they, they haven't done a single thing, no, nothing, except generate a sense of good feeling about themselves and give them a sense as they enter their career that they had their radical phase and now they've learned from it and they're moving on, et cetera. This notion that grad student organizing can be a sharp edge of the class struggle, I think is just a fantasy and it's a very self-serving fantasy because the people propagating it are either grad students or their, their supervisors. Mm -hmm. I don't think they're a reactionary force. I, they, they could be brought along, but they'll be, have to be the engine of that will have to come from somewhere else. And if you have another, anyone has a candidate better than the traditional blue collar working class, I'd love to know. I haven't seen one. Mm -hmm. So that class will be, may not be housed in manufacturing the way it was before. It might be in services. It might be in logistics. It might be in warehousing or something. Uh, but I don't see any alternative to organizing that class. And that brings us back to why we do work like what we're doing. Traditionally, who organized the working class? Well, there were some elements of the middle class who did it. Yeah, absolutely. But in the halcyon period of working class trade union formation of the 18, let's say 90s to the 1920s, 
it was actually the very skilled sections of the class itself because they had more leverage they were less easy to replace they had more confidence they were literate they read they had their 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 um, worker study circles a lot of them were craft unionists so the middle class was part of the middle class organizers like lenin like trotsky mm. were part of it, but they were merely the visible end of it a lot of the actual work was being done by the workers themselves mm. where hey we are not in a position where workers who are highly skilled or in the right sections are taking up organizing drive on a mass scale because the whole tradition, that whole culture has been destroyed. We are right now trying to generate elements of the middle class who could do some of the spade work that it will yeah. take to start a process in which sections of the working class will then take up the burden and take up the culture. That's where we are. That's where a book like this is necessary because in that Sanders, Bernie Sanders moment in this country, you don't have a moment in yours. Hopefully you'll have one at some point. In that moment, students will play an important role. And when they do, they need to be given something that helps them regain the confidence, understand the implications of their theory, and push back against the dim-witted professoriate that's telling them that the world is a cultural construction, that Marxists are, are raped, you know, they, they help rape culture and they're all racist and things like that. They need to be able to, to fight back. And what we're trying to do is arm them with a theory to do so. Mm. But theory will have to be given, in my opinion, to a traditional working class, not to unemployed PhDs. Mm. And and thinking about prospects for that happening, I know we're, we shouldn't, and this is maybe to wrap up, I know we, we shouldn't be in the business of being optimistic or pessimistic. We should just do the work regardless. But but thinking about the, the current conjuncture and all of the multiple crises that we're facing, uh, geopolitical crises, stagnating capitalism, looming ecological catastrophe, um, the demobilization of, of political forces generally, uh, the way, I guess, social media and the internet has just completely disfigured our subjectivity, you know, all of these, all of these factors. Um, where, where is, where do you see that opening? Where do you see in, in the sort of, in the ruins of, I guess, uh, left populism, particularly in, in the West, um, and everyone trying to pick up the pieces of the end of the Bernie moment, the Corbyn moment, Podemos, Syriza, uh, all of these, all of these efforts. Uh, where where might there be a gap to try and kickstart this process of of building labor um, and reviving labor? Uh, and as we've just discussed, uh, even that is is a, is a highly uh, uneven process given the the decomposition of of labor and its its transformation uh, but where might that opening be well i believe there are two openings william that we should be very cognizant of um and they're they're quite significant the first is that the ideological legitimacy of neoliberalism has collapsed now this is not to say that to the working class, maybe legitimacy is wrong, but the ideological coherence of neoliberalism has collapsed. The working class, in my view, never thought neoliberalism legitimate from the 90s, the whole Reagan-Thatcher uh, era onward. This was one of the mistakes that the left made was in confusing stability with legitimacy. 
mm. just because there was no resistance to neoliberalism they thought it means because everybody likes it in fact what was happening was people had been pummeled into submission once you destroy the organizations of the working class they now confront their employer man to man person to person and in that confrontation they see the power imbalance and they put their head down and they try to get through it and that's what neoliberalism was what it instilled in them was a particular ideology now again remember the motivation comes from their material circumstances now right. comes an ideology the ideology was one where because they were atomized because they were isolated from each other because their only contact in the world was through television the media as you're saying it was easy to believe that the message the media was giving them that everybody loves neoliberalism that message was true and that they individually were the only person that was unhappy that sense of atomization was a tremendous achievement for the ruling classes because it convinced individual workers that other workers were happy with the system mm. that is what the corbin sanders movement moment dissolved because suddenly it was publicly visible that everybody hated the system and that is still true today even though corbin went down in flames and sanders is petering out everybody is aware that the system in fact has no real uh, normative and cultural anchor in the masses of the people that gives us an organizing opening that we didn't have before because in, before if you went to try to organize they would say you're crazy nobody's gonna nobody's gonna take up this issue because you can't change this system and now suddenly issues are on the political menu that were not even conceivable eight or ten years ago even though those issues are being defeated in the legislatures they're on the menu which is a big deal so the first opening is ideologically neoliberalism is on its heels the second opening is that uh, the what forces there are right now politically visible are the far right which is gaining traction yeah and the identitarian left which is standing in as a kind of last bastion of support for the con the contemporary order albeit using the language of radicalism so you have on the one hand the far right taking advantage of the working class dissatisfaction because they're the only people appealing to them and then the, the language of reform has been taken up by the identitarian liberals who essentially just want to diversify the ruling class and diversify elite institutions mm. now the reason for hope there is that neither of them has a solution to the crisis of neoliberalism mm. right if you look at the right today they have no economic program they are essentially neoliberalism with some protectionist gloss and mild redistributive impulses, but no challenge to the basic economic model of neoliberalism. If you look at the identitarian liberals, their only answer is to remove obstacles for people who are, they feel, unjustly or illegitimately blocked from upward mobility. Mm. The identitarian model of social justice is upward mobility for elite strata within minority populations, leaving the masses of black and brown people to their own devices. Neither of them has a solution. If the current, the small but growing socialist left 
overcomes its cultural hesitancy, overcomes its, sorry to say, hatred of the poor, gathers up some strength and courage of its convictions and orients to labor, labor in the way that it has historically, the field is wide open. Because what we see is the rights traction is real, but limited. It hasn't been able to really take over the scene. And as far as the identitarian left goes, everybody hates them. Everybody outside of the middle class has nothing but contempt for them because they have nothing but contempt for everyone else. Mm. So they're not going to, they're not going to get very far. They're simply not. The choice we have is between an ongoing slow motion implosion of neoliberalism where we are today and a revitalization of the left. The current politically dominant forces, this degenerate liberalism on the one side and the growing or and small right on the other, in my view, neither of them can solve the political and ideological crisis that neoliberalism has. Both of them are symptoms of that crisis. They can, can't do anything about it. That's our opening. That's where we can work if, if we get over ourselves and stop tripping over our own feet. Professor Chiba, I couldn't think of a, of a better place to end with that clarion call, time to do the work, stop tripping over our feet. And if we're still feeling unconfident, then go see your therapist, but leave that, <laughs> leave that away from, from politics. Uh, thank you so much yeah. for coming onto the program. It was my pleasure. Thank you, William. A uh, reminder to our listeners, you've been listening to my interview with Professor Vivek Chiba talking about his latest book, The Class Matrix Social Theory After the Cultural Turn, released this year by Harvard University Press. Uh, you can find it online or hopefully if your bookstore stocks it. Uh, and you've been listening to your weekly destination for cultural criticism and political commentary on issues affecting the world from an African perspective. My name is William Shorkey. Thank you for listening and I'll catch you again next week. Goodbye. Mm -hmm.